Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, and we will read verses 1 through 14 um, as we seek to cover today verses 8 through 14. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. The word of the Lord says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us an offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this we know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifested by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake, thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. May the Lord bless the reading, the hearing, and the understanding of His Holy Word. In our last message in this text several weeks ago that was entitled Barred from Heaven, we benefited from the wisdom of God through the inspired Apostle Paul who spoke very clearly to these early Christians in Ephesus who they, like us, come from very similar cultural contexts. Their cultural context and our cultural context through various means, through various methods, seek to amplify perversions of part of our humanity that we call our sexuality. Now, the scriptures speak often about this aspect of being male and female. And furthermore, the Bible provides a masterful blueprint designed by God Himself that when it is followed, it will grant an individual sanctified pleasure in both a balanced and a beautiful God-centered way. This aspect of being a man and a woman coming together in holy matrimony according to God's way is a beautiful, balanced, God-centered, satisfying experience. Last week, there were, we saw, particularly from 1 Corinthians, an early letter to the Christians in Corinth, we saw from the book of Acts of the concern of the Christians who were having a big meeting about justification by faith alone, the issue of sexual sins came to the surface. And it was a great concern to the New Covenant Church. It was a great concern of individuals who claimed to be followers of Jesus out of these Gentile societies who were continuing in unrepentant various sexual sins that Paul described last time we were in this text in verses 2 through 5 as fornication, uncleanness, filthiness, Etc. Now, while these things 
that he described in the early church, not just the Apostle Paul, were greatly concerned about. While these things were largely accepted as normal in their societies, while they were even considered to a large degree harmless within their society, Paul and the other church leaders wanted to express that in no, in no uncertain terms that the Christians' thoughts and the Christians' actions with regard to themselves as men and women in relationship to their sexuality were to be brought before the cross and the crown of Christ and not to be abused for one's own self-desires. This was the clear speech that Paul is attempting to communicate early on in chapter 5 and also addressed in the early letters to the church. We know that because Paul's instructions reveal, as we saw, that for the Christian, one's body, and that is all of one's body, is to be surrendered in verses 1 and 2 in selfless love. Selfless love in contrast to selfish love, selfish wishes. Now, church, continue with this introductory thought. This sort of thinking, which is rooted in God's Word, rooted in God's law, about ourselves as men and women, it would have been entirely countercultural to these Gentiles. And indeed, for us today, who were converted out of the modern Western society, it too is countercultural, this worldview about our sexuality. Sure, they had, did they not, the temple of Diana. We touched on that on our introductory message to Ephesians. A temple which was a public place that promoted all forms of lewdness, uh, endorsed it, accepted it. But we too, in the Western societal context, we also have our own secret little temples, don't we? Which are, approved, which are approved of. Which are continuously promoted to desensitize us to God's ways unto the world's thinking and their ways about these matters. And thus, this counter-worldview instruction that Paul and the other early apostles are placing before the Christian. It is intended to serve as a means of reorientation for the thinking and the practices of these converted Gentiles, not only them back, you know, some 2,000 years ago, but also for us today. These pilgrims, as if it were, who were now being fit, reoriented for heaven have begun a journey of biblical reformation in their thinking about these matters. Now last week, if we learned, I'm sorry, not last week, two weeks ago, forgot Brother Martin preached last week, two weeks ago, if we learned something about those who remain unrepentant in darkness related to these sexual sins, those who were, as we noted, were barred from heaven in verse 7, Today, I believe, we're going to learn something about the pilgrim's path to heaven. There were those who were barred from heaven, but today we're going to learn distinguishing mark about those who have begun the reorientation process in regards to specifically these matters and their pathway to heaven. So they're not barred from heaven, they're on a pathway, but there's distinctive road signs that they encounter. There's distinctive marks, Nolan, for this pilgrim who is on their way to heaven, and when they get there, will be accepted. They won't be barred. We're going to see that in verses 8 through 14. Paul, first, for those taking notes, he acknowledges, he recognizes the pilgrim's journey begins. In verses 8 and 9, the journey begins. And then, He amplifies in verses 10 and the first half of 11 the pilgrim's challenge. And then in the latter half of 11 and 13 he recognizes and calls the pilgrim to a duty. And then he ends in verse 14 with a pilgrim promise. The beginning of a journey, a challenge, a duty, and a promise. 
look with me here as Paul recognizes that they are indeed pilgrims. Not those barred from heaven, but those who have begun a process of biblical reformation in their thinking about these particular issues and all matters indeed, but he recognizes that they are indeed pilgrims. Verse 8, Ye were sometimes darkness. Ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the Lord. Paul describes those prior to biblical conversion as those who can be described literally as darkness. But what's he talking about here? Is he talking about literally uh, absence of material called light? Like these people are walking black holes walking around? That'd be kind of scary to see some of those people, right? No, he's not. But rather what Paul's doing here when he says ye were sometimes darkness, is he's using spiritual language to convey a spiritual truth. Think for a moment with me about the context in which this statement is found in this chapter. Now prior to this, in verses 2-7, through Paul was describing someone who lived an unrepentant life, which time will manifest, will reap the eternal consequences of such a life, verse 7. So you see, in this context of talking about an individual's choices which dictate their actions, Paul describes them as darkness in that context, what they were doing. And so in this context, Paul describes these Christians as formerly, literally being darkness. And this is where we find our meaning of what he's talking about. Darkness, as we have it here in verse 8, is describing the character of their former unconverted life, which was lived day to day, particularly in relationship to their understanding of their sexuality as being void of truth and all virtue from God's law. They were formerly in darkness. In relationship to who they were as men and women, what was largely accepted within their culture, what they thought and what they practiced was void of truth, void of light. They were blinded. Now we see in the text, the focus notices on the past tense. Ye were sometimes darkness. And this is in complete harmony with what Paul earlier said to these Christians back in chapter 2, verses 11 and 13, when he said, In time past, you were Gentiles in the flesh. In time past. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes afar off have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. You see, he's recognizing you are pilgrims. You were one time darkness, but something's happened. You've been brought nigh by the blood of Christ, and now you are different. But what is it that's different? Well, through the gospel. These early converts who lived an unrepentant lifestyle that easily could have included much of what Paul described in verses 2 through 7 have been delivered from that power of darkness which which once completely ruled them and held complete dominion over their lives. They didn't have one second thought about their actions or the way they thought. Why? Because neighbor uh, Festus and Felix, they were doing the same thing. Those are good Greek names, right? Good Roman names. You see difference. Paul's recognizing here in verse 8, as part of the beginning of their pilgrim journey toward heaven, there was a great liberation that took place. A great turning from ignorance unto truth. A great reorientation of worldview from the power of darkness, that is ignorance, unto the power of light, which is truth. This comes through wonderfully in Colossians 1 verses 12 through 13. This this shift, this beginning of a journey, this beginning of the pilgrim, this initial step of the pilgrim on his way to heaven, who won't be barred from heaven. He wrote to the early Colossian church, giving thanks always unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of saints. Listen, in light. Inheritance in the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son. Thus we learn in this text, 
Part of being converted, being made partakers of the inheritance of the saints, includes being granted light. The, 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 the old hymns, they, they capture this thought, this experience of conversion. Where the shackles of blindness fall off, the shackles of ignorance fall off. A new understanding, a new birth takes place within the consciousness of the man or the woman, the boy or the girl, who comes and sees themselves in light of God's holy law and what Christ has done. There is an awakening, a light that's turned on for them. And we see that in verse 8, that just as Paul referred to them as being darkness, he also says, notice what the text says, you are now light in the Lord. And of course here, he's describing their new life. He's describing their new worldview. He's describing this biblical reformation that's taken place in their thinking and their understanding with particular emphasis of what he's been talking about since Verse 3. The practices of the debauchery that is so commonly accepted and promoted within the cultural context they find themselves. You have been made aware of the truth. You are no longer darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You are awake. You see. You understand. Their former darkness, along with everyone else, it accepted, promoted, excused ideas and perverted notions related to their sexuality, while true light, the Lord's light, it corrects and it reorients such thinking. And beloved, this is the powerful, wonderful part of the gospel. Christ does free enslaved minds. Christ frees enslaved minds. People who have been converted see the light of God's truth and they think differently. They think differently. This is part of the miracle which takes place every time a person is converted through the power of God unto salvation. Think about that for a moment. People spend thousands of dollars going to psychologists and psychiatrists. Our society spends millions of dollars, of your taxpayer dollars even, I would imagine. I haven't done the research, but I'm sure it's true. Upon medications to give to people who are trying to get free from certain ways of thinking. But yet, through spoken words, used as an instrument of surgery by God's Spirit, can completely change the way and orientation of a man or a woman's thinking. That's the miracle. That's the power of God's gospel. And it's still working today. I'm not going to do it, but I can ask someone to raise your hand. Do you, did you encounter Jesus and His claims and His gospel and it changed the way you think about everything? Of course, you would raise your hand. That's why you're here today listening to someone like me. Their minds as Christians think different. Not perfectly different. Not completely maturely different as they will. However, altogether they are different than they were before. And their minds as the Christian will be subject to a truth which is outside themselves. That is God's truth. And this kind of ties in with the Sunday school class. In one shift from being ignorant to the light of truth to beginning their journey as a pilgrim toward heaven, that is, walking in light, they are given by the Lord Himself a new knowledge, a heaven-sent light, a truth which will subdue their conscience unto its claims that it is absolutely the authority and the truth. That is the light. And by God's Spirit, we are made children of light. We're able to see and acquiesce to its truth and bow to its authority and submit to it. This new reality, it's manifested upon the pilgrim in their first initial steps that they take away from darkness toward more and more light. And the pilgrim instinctively places their trust in only one authority for all truths pertaining to their faith and practice, and that is this book. They're children of light. God's light has come into their life, into their understanding. 
They welcome it. They love it. Look in verse 9 with me. Verse 9. It evidences a reaction to this light. It, it, it evidences in the description of fruits that exhibit that this light has occurred within the life of an individual. It describes the fruits of the Spirit as goodness, righteousness, and truth. This is what the child of light possesses. Goodness in the Greek carries with it the idea of a, a, a morality of heart. A child of light on issues particularly of morality, and in this context related to sexuality, will not look at what one uh, uh, thinks is right about that moral issue or what society thinks about that moral issue and come over to God's Word and say, oh, well, God's Word says that's not moral. Well, I'm still going to ignore that. No, there is a very sincere sensitivity to the moral law of God as connected to what He says in His Word. Now, what this does for us as modern I, may I dare say evangelicals, that, that's such a slippery term nowadays, what it does for us is it causes us to take a couple steps back and perceive what largely is being discussed as things that are permissible and tolerable amongst us as the Christian church with regard to what is moral and what is not. Right? There are certain things, and you, you're aware of these things, that are being uh, softened in the church as possibly things that you know we can tolerate we can accept so forth and so on when God's moral law clearly identifies them as sin you see a child of light has within him an innate birth of goodness that which is willing and being sensitive to what God calls moral what God does not call moral and he's not going to call black, black, uh, black white or white black he's just going to say you know what Th that's just not right why? Because there is a uh, uh, goodness within him or her to recognize the moral law of God. Now it seems like almost as if there's three things being repeated. Goodness, righteousness, truth. Well, isn't that all the same thing? Well, it's a little bit different. Righteousness in the Greek carries with it the idea of correct feelings and the correct thinking and right behavior. So there is, again, birth within the child of light uh, awareness, a new understanding of worldview, and also a willingness to come to God's moral law and say, you know what? Yes, I do need to think correctly to that. I'm willing to acquiesce to its truths and its claims. I'm not going to kick against the pricks. Yes, I may be failing here, and yes, I may have been failing over there in the past, and yeah, I've made some progress over here, but at the end of the day, there is within their hearts some righteousness. They love the truth of God's moral law. And there is an element of honesty. That's what he says in this person of light, this pilgrim of light who's begun this journey, taking baby steps away from the darkness. They will be honest with themselves and they're going to be honest with God. They're not going to deceive themselves. God's word says what it says. And it's above me and I'm underneath it. And, and oh Jesus, help me, I need some help. Brothers and sisters, help me, I need some help. You see, this is the child of light. This is the description that marks the pilgrim who will not be barred from heaven. Now we know from the writings of Paul elsewhere that such fruits, as he's mentioning here in verse 9, they're not immediately as mature as one individual would like or others would like. However, nonetheless, they are reality in their life as a child of light. And while at times they may seem imperceptible, they will with age, they will experience during the pilgrim's progress, going back to the promise in Philippians where God will work these things out in our life, they will during their pilgrim's journey become more and more developed and strengthened. And guess what? It's a necessity they be strengthened. You know why? Because what we see next, the, the pilgrim is going to be challenged. The pilgrim is going to be challenged. Look at verse 10 in the first half of 11 with me. Indeed, they must become strengthened for they are vital to not only the ongoing joy and assistance which they will provide the pilgrim in their journey unto heaven, but to arm and prepare the Christian to prepare the pilgrim for the challenges that will await them in connection with all of these things we're discussing. Verse 10 says, You who were once darkness, 
You who now have had your minds awakened. You who have been birthed with light. You who now think differently. You look differently. You know things are different. Guess what? Prove that which is acceptable unto the Lord. This light that you're given as a child of God, it's not a membership card you fold nicely and you tuck away in your wallet. You say, I got my card. I'm going to heaven. No, it's a tool. It's a wonderful blessing and asset that God gives you as a liberated mind to now do what? To prove what is acceptable unto the Lord. There's two things that are challenges here, and I'm going to explain how I'm dissecting this up. I'm considering this call to prove what is acceptable unto the Lord as a challenge and the having no fellowship with the unfruitful works of a challenge. And I'm doing that to verse 11 for a reason, and I'll say it in a moment. First of all, as children of the light, the Christian no longer has the luxury of gleefully accepting things presented to him in his or her approval without first asking this question. This is what Paul's teaching here. What would my heavenly Father, who has come and rang the alarm bell, has totally taken me out of my cocoon? And I like that cocoon, brother. It was nice, warm. You know what I mean? You have to think twice. There were certain aspects of it, though, where there was emptiness, right? And I knew that there was, there was voids and there was searching. You know, this was the call of God internally in my life. The, the, the pastor I thought was so green and my liberties began to produce more and more weeds and cause drama and conflict and pain and suffering in my life, right? But, Paul's saying... The Christian, after this weekend, he asked the question, what would my Heavenly Father think about this? Would it be acceptable to Him? And this is the very idea that's captured in this word that's translated for us from the Greek, proving. It carries with it the idea to test, to examine, to prove, and to scrutinize. Now, I picked the word challenge because that's really what we do as Christians, isn't it, Colin? We, 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 we are converted, and then all of a sudden, from our old life, and even sometimes from around us in society, people we work with, we're constantly brought things to accept and approve. And we have to do what? We have to test, we have to prove, we have to challenge them. The Webster 1828 Dictionary says, challenge means to verbally or in writing decide a controversy. The pilgrim, you see, very quickly, Nolan, on his journey, is confronted with challenges. He has to decide certain controversies about what is acceptable unto the Lord. He just doesn't, you know, kind of skip in silver slippers. You guys remember the character in Pilgrim's Progress? I always think he has a German or Russian accent in the, in the Answers in Genesis CD audio drama, but it's a guy who, who he prefers religion in his silver slippers. No, that's not what Paul is describing here in verse 10. Challenge all things. Test all things. Thus, in this immediate context, with focus upon the issue, let's not lose track here, of one's sexuality and in particular the sinful practices that are largely accepted, that are largely normalized by their culture. Paul says that the Christians are to prove, to test, and to challenge all ideas about these issues by the Word of God. Why? Because it is the Word of God, he tells us in 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 that informs us as sons and you as daughters of Zion of what is permissible and acceptable and beneficial, beneficial for the Word of God. In other words, the Christian church, the children of light, that are elsewhere described as the bride of Christ, are not to take their understanding about sexuality and or other moral issues from what is culturally popular or accepted. No, rather than conforming to the darkened understanding of the world, we as the children of light, we as the followers of Jesus, we as the Christian church conform to the Word of God. Any church on these simple aspects of what Paul is describing here in Ephesians 2 down through 5, want to try to place them upon Christ's bride, the church, forfeits their identity as being the very bride of Christ themselves. They are not the bride of Christ. 
And there are truthfully people today who are putting into the pulpit people who are outright sodomites, marrying sodomites, so forth and so on. People who say they have the, the, the lustful desires and we just need to accept it all. Beloved, they're tiptoeing on dangerous ground is what I'm trying to tell you here. They are not challenging. They are not testing. They are laying their swords down, brother. And they're letting the culture around them come and tell them you must conform to us of what's popular and what's accepted. What are we going to do? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm sticking to verse number 10. I'm going to prove, I'm going to test, and I'm going to challenge these controversies to what God's Word says. Listen to this. Even if they indict myself. Even if they indict myself. Because it is the standard above all of us. All of us. And dare we never, as those who have been given light, dare bring any kind of reproach or suspicion upon what God's Word clearly says about any issue, but particularly these issues that we're discussing. discussing. You know what? Paul amplifies this all over the place in his letters to the early church. You know this verse quite well, Romans 12, 1-3. He says, I beseech you, I'm pleading with you therefore, brethren. He understands the, 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 what the pilgrim's going to be tested with. He understands the stresses that these pilgrims are going to be facing. He said, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And here it is. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that ye may, here's our Greek word, prove, test. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? This was the challenge of the ancient pilgrims and it's still the challenge today for us as modern pilgrims. Will you be a tester? Will you be a prover? Will you be a young man of courage seeking to challenge what sometimes your very own heart will want to question? I pray I'm found on the right side of the battle, brethren. Why is this a challenge? Why am I saying this? Well, because in order to prove things, in order to test things, we can't remain idle. We have to actually get into the Word of God. Uh, We actually have to read. We actually have to study. This is the war manual. This is the testing manual. Uh, Brother Aaron, you're in engineering and at work. You guys have specs, tolerances, things of that nature. Well, you don't guess on those, do you? No. No. If he did that, he'd lose his job real quick. You know, Brother Mark, same thing. Colin, same thing. You're, you're, you're doing things. There's a lot of specs you've got to meet, tight tolerances. You've got to go what? To the manual. You have to go to the instructions, and you have to test that. What sort of pilgrim who's called to test, to examine, to challenge, doesn't frequently assess the manual? It's someone who's not really serious about the call. That's why it's a challenge. Because it demands of us to get out of our comfortability. It demands of us to, to participate. It demands of us to exercise and to, and to work and to do a little bit of something ourselves. Perhaps this is why Satan, the evil one, in our modern cultural context, he wants all of you young ones particularly, and particularly you young men, you're on the radar specifically, to be lazy, have a self-entitled attitude, dumb you down in your thinking. This is prevalent in the, in the modern public education system. Do the research. The statistics are there. Why? Because the evil one doesn't want you to read. He doesn't want you to have those disciplines of wanting to research and to figure things out and to study. No, he wants you to just gleebly go through life and be slothful in your thinking. Well, I'm getting off, getting off track here. By doing this, the pilgrim... By doing what? By, by going to God's Word, by testing things, by challenging things that are presented before him on his journey to accept or not accept. By doing this, beloved, we come to the, second, the first part of verse 11. The, the pilgrim will abstain from having fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Now this English word fellowship translated from the Greek carries with the idea to become a partaker together with others. Listen to this. To have fellowship with a thing. That could be an ideology, a philosophy, uh, so forth and so on. So it's not just other people. It's what motivates other people. 
And you see real clearly, right? As the Christian faces this challenge and does test and does exercise, they will organically abstain from fellowship from that which is not in harmony with God's word. But where you find the Christian who is not testing, who is not examining, who is not answering the call to challenge those things that are presented before them, you're going to see them be, be partakers of those things which they are not to be partakers of. Now, we move to the area of challenge, getting us out of our comfort zone to read, study, pray, examine things to what I'm calling the pilgrim's duty in verse 11 through 13. We're going to move from a challenge to duty. Because what do we do as pilgrims who as children of light have been awakened, made aware, and we are by God's grace, back to uh, uh, Philippians, the verse 1, or chapter 1, we are by His grace seeking uh, to challenge things, tons of things coming at us all day, brothers and sisters, wanting us to accept them. And, and by His grace, we're, we're searching the Word and, and we're listening and, and we're open and we want to be guided and we want to be corrected. What if we're doing that? But what if we're running into other people who aren't doing that? What do we do? I call this a duty. He says in verse 11, we're to reprove them. We're to reprove them. So therefore... What do we make of those individuals who want to bring these things, these sexual perversions outside in cultures into the church and call them permissible and acceptable? What do we do with our unconverted neighbors, unconverted co-workers, so forth and so on, who want to say, oh, you're just a stick in the mud, you're taking things too seriously, you're such a hypocrite because of this, this, and this, blah, 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 blah. What What are we to do? Well, it's a duty that we reprove them. And the reason I'm calling this a duty, the reason I'm shifting in my outline from a challenge, which is uh, part of our flesh is a little lazy. We've got you know, to study. We've got to test these things. It's part of our responsibility. Listen to the, 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 the definition of duty. Duty carries with it the definition, an obligatory service or function that arises from one's position. Right? So we're being called children of light. We're challenged to test all things as children of light, being able to discern facts from fiction, being able to discern whether or not something is true, something is false according to the Word of God. And then because of our position as children of light, because of our converted position from darkness into a new category of light, given this ability by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit to discern these things, we have a duty to speak. We have a duty to correct. We have a duty to to what it says, reprove. Now this word reprove, for those who want to shrink back from this duty, uh, none of us like confrontation. None of us like conflict. You know, And we have to be wise. Uh, be wise as serpent, meek as doves. This is a biblical principle and how we reprove. Okay? Some people run into conversations like a, a guy with a hatchet and just, you know what I mean, going to just rip things up. And you know what? Sometimes that may be appropriate. Uh, maybe, you know, you, <laughs> that might be necessary. Uh, the, the people who try to challenge, call in the church here and, and get me on the phone, uh, trying to challenge the Trinity. I'm using the hatchet, Colin. I'm bringing the, the hatchet out. You know, but when I'm talking to my, my neighbor, who really is just, as we were saying before church today, is a, is a possible, I say possible, sheep without a shepherd, well, I'm going to use a scalpel. You understand the difference here. The word that's translated reproves, translated rebuke, Convince. That idea comes with you know reasoning with someone, trying to reveal the truth to them. Um, it's translated, tell one's fault. It's translated one time as that, and also convict. Now this is a duty because this is not comfortable for us to do, but Paul is commanding that we do this. He's commanding that we do this. While the Greek informs us of the action, the word duty demonstrates our obligation. And not only is it a shame to speak of these things we see in the text, but that are done by them in secret, approved by them in secret, promoted by them in secret, but we are to reprove them. But how are we going to do that? How, how, what's the steps he uses to do that? 
Well, look at the text. All things, verse 13, that are reproved are made manifest that they're wrong by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Remember the context that he was calling them darkness and now light. It was not only through their knowledge of being awakened to the truth of God's will as it is Scripture, but it was also a change from doing those things unto doing something different. So it was manifesting the deeds of darkness by not only their words, convincing, contending, but also their lives. And thus there is a real fundamental reality to the witness of the church in how we walk in the light as Christians. What Paul is saying here is that part of the thing that's going to tell, that's going to reprove, that's going to convince those who are in the darkness, those who are mocking the light, is actually looking at your light. I listened to a uh, commencement speech for a seminary um, graduate class. A little bit of it, I, I mean, I didn't listen to the whole thing. I listened to it last night. And one of the things that the man was saying to these young men who were graduating and seeking to lead churches, he, see, he said basically this, I'm paraphrasing. You need to get one thing clear. Reformation and Reformed theology is not a, just what you know. It's not a bunch of facts, but it is that which changes your life. And so you ought to be at home what you claim to be at church. And what was he doing there? Well, you're saying many times what we say here, right? Is that these doctrinal truths, they trickle down in our lives as children of life and they change us. They change the way we raise our children. They change the way that we relate to one another as husband and wife. They change the way we relate to one another as, uh, you know, uh, brothers and sisters in the church, so forth and so on. And when that takes place, when that true reformation takes place, of not just orthodoxy, what we believe, but our orthopraxy, what we practice, the power of that witness, Paul is saying here, will be part of the witness of God to those outside still in darkness that will prove, that will rebuke, and possibly be used to call them unto the truth. As things continue to wax colder and darker, beloved, according to this text, the children of light should shine brighter and brighter. It's sad that the church would ever begin to dim its light as the culture moves in a, in a trajectory that gets darker and darker. Now sadly, in modern history, we see that the larger visible church, I put that in brackets, usually is only 10 to 20 years behind the accepted beliefs and practices of a culture. right? But according to what we see here, the true church, the true children of light, will manifest by not what they only say, but also as they grow and how they live, and they will be a beacon of God's light to the darkened world. This is what Paul's amplifying here. All of this ends with a beautiful promise in verse 14. All of this ends with the pilgrim's promise. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. Now, as I study this text, uh, there's people coming at it from different angles, but it is nonetheless, and I'm going to try to navigate it this way, I believe a promise that's emanating from Paul's familiarity with the prophet Isaiah. Turn your Bibles open to Isaiah 60, 1 through 3. Because what Paul's doing here is he's quoting Isaiah 60, 1 through 3. And we're going to look at that and then we're going to bring it back to the context of this uh, challenge and this duty of children of light interacting with those who we have to reprove not only with our words and our uh, reorientated, reformed understanding of biblical truth, but also with our lives. Paul quotes this and I saw this and I was like, okay, Paul, you do this all the time, inspired by the Spirit. Yes, indeed, but what do I do with this? Look what he says here in Isaiah uh, 60, 1 through 3. Arise, 
shine for thy light is come. And we've qualified this usage of the word light today. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And notice verse 3. The Gentiles shall come to thy light and kings to the brightness of thy rising. Now this is prophetic messianic language that he's talking about. Christ. Christ will be that light. And the Gentiles will be gravitated toward this light out of darkness and they're going to receive and participate in the covenant blessings that were made to the Jews. And so we come back to our text today and Paul's ending his whole thought about us as pilgrim starting a journey, us being challenged out of our comfort zone to test and, and improve things and to challenge things, and then laying on us a command and a duty to not only speak the truth to people who are in error, but also manifest it in our life to be an added witness. And he quotes this. That through that, Christ, I believe what Paul's communicating here, is going to be witnessing to the Gentiles around us with this light to show them not the squeaky clean, immaculate, perfect plastic church, but a people indeed who are different and are who are alight. And they're going to gravitate toward that. They're, they're, they're going to see that there is something different about the Christian church. No matter how much we press on them, they will not accept the darkness. No, much, no matter what uh, tribulations they go through, they seem to always want to cling to their faith. You see, and this, if you know anything about church history, over and over again was the very seed that God used through the blood and the witness of all of His martyrs to do what? Be the testimony that pricked the conscience of those who were their persecutors. What? The Roman soldiers would think. You remember when we, uh, beloved, were in church history class and we were going through the letters of uh, Polycarp and the ones who... Uh, uh, were written by uh, oh boy I can't remember his name now he was it's a, it's a it, it, we have the extant manuscripts it was one of the Roman soldiers who witnessed to his captain what should I do with these Christians we we keep imprisoning them even the elderly no matter how old they are they're still willing to go through suffering they're still so intent on gathering on the Lord's day we don't know what to do with this I mean I, I feel in a way kind of bad for what we're doing to them because they're so peaceful and you know they're so helpful you see it was that that was moving that man's conscience that there's some power to this faith there's some power to their their gospel this is the pilgrim's pathway to heaven it is initiated by the sovereign power of God to awaken our minds to the truth it prepares us to meet challenges brother Mark and oh how we need help Colin to meet the challenges that come before us as men to test things, ideology, philosophies. And it prepares us, the Spirit of God, to be bold, meek, but bold, firm, um, but sure, right? And speaking what needs to be spoken, the season it needs to be spoken in. And never wavering and never compromising. And it has connected to it this wonderful promise to the pilgrim who will be met at the door and the gates of heaven. Welcome in as a pilgrim, in the end, for doing that which the Lord had called him to do, trust and obey. Trust and obey. May the Lord help us today. May He help us in these matters. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father above, we, God, thank You today for, Lord, this outline that we see in this early part of Ephesians 5, by which, God, we have many parallels in our own time by these early Christians in Ephesus. There are, like there was then, many perversions, O oh God, in our own cultural context, which, Father, could be easily identified with our 
former ways and understanding. But God, we understand that something has occurred. There is a journey that has been initiated by you. And the power of your spirit has brought light into our understanding. Those who claim Christ as Savior. Those who claim Christ as Master. And oh Lord, I pray that you would use that light. That you would mature that light. That you would cultivate a continued reliance upon the authority of that light. And that we would indeed be those in our age today that would test, would examine, would challenge. And oh God, help us. Give us the words as you gave to Moses. Give us the words as you gave to Paul. When we stand before the naysayers, the mockers of the faith, God, give us an answer for the hope that lies within us. Help us to reprove, to convince. Help us to convict. Lord, we are by nature, especially in any culture, but in the West, uh, Lord, prone to shy away from difficult conversations. But God, perhaps this is indeed the coldness that pervades throughout the land and we see no great movements of your spirit because we have withheld the light. Lord, we have uh, by fear of austernation and indeed that pressure is amplifying within our own cultural context here in the United States where we are, are being made to feel don't you dare voice the truth of the light. Oh God, give these young people, I pray, give them a keen understanding. Oh God, give them words of wisdom. Help them be bold as lion at the gates, Lord, with the next generation. For that pressure is going to continue to increase. And it may ask and cost dearly, Lord, much to stand for the light. But Lord, help us, I pray, to fulfill this duty. And oh God, in so doing, will you uphold as you promised through the prophet Isaiah, bring the Gentile nations into thy kingdom. Lord, use the light of the gospel, use the light of Christ in and through his church as a glorious and powerful witness and tool to bring every single person who Christ died for into the blessed bonds of the covenant of grace. We thank you, O God, and we ask you to prepare our hearts now as we remember the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ upon the cross at the supper. We offer all these things in his holy name. Amen.